Romans chapter 12. You know, you could sum up in a way, you could sum up a big part of the Bible with, with this kind of statement. Look at everything that God has done for you. Look at everything that God has done for you. Therefore, you ought to live like this. I think that's a pretty good way of summing up the Bible, really. Look at everything that God has done for you. I mean, I mean really, think about it. Think about every, everything, everything that He's done for you, especially when you get to the New Covenant, He talks about everything I've done for you in Christ. Therefore, therefore, live like this. Look at our text with you. Would you, would you do that with me? This is a, just two verses, pretty familiar to you, I'm guessing. But um, text that has so much, so much meaning in it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Now, I like, some of you use the NIV. And I like the way the NIV puts this here. Because it's not so clear in the ESV. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. But I, I like the way the, the NIV does this and changes it just a little bit and says, in view of, in view of God's mercies or in view of the mercy God has extended to us. You see that? Most, most of you probably are using one that says, by the mercies of God or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I think it, it, it misses Paul's main point, And that is what he's saying here at the beginning of our little paragraph is he's saying, okay, I've been talking to you about some pretty, pretty deep stuff for 11 chapters now. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how this, this changes what you do when you go to the workplace tomorrow. You know, this, is, this, is, this, this makes a difference. This isn't just theology. It's not just, God isn't just concerned about what you believe, that you, that you, got, the right, you got the right facts theologically, that you got it all worked out. And those, Paul talks about, especially when he gets to Romans 9, 10, and 11, he talks about like justification, these big words, sanctification, glorification, election, predestination. Paul talks about a lot of Asian kind of thing, these big ideas, these big theological ideas. And sometimes we can kind of get the impression that as long as we've got the right theology, as long as we've got everything right, we've, we've got our, our statement of faith or whatever, we've got this list of things that you've got to believe and we've got our, our doctrine right, theology right, you know, we can... We can kind of get to the point that we think that's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. You got your doctrine right. Well, Paul says no. That's not it. You do need to have certain things you believe. That's chapters 1 through 11. This is, this is what you ought to believe. This is what God has done. But then he switches and he says, okay, based on that, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. So if you, if you read it like that, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I'm going to change it just a bit. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... In view of what God has done for you. And we're going to spend just a couple minutes talking about that. Because I don't want to go immediately into where he says, okay, this is what you do. That's where he's going with this. But, but, but the problem with, with us is a lot of times it's not that we don't know what we ought to do or that we, ought, that we don't know what we ought not to do. It's not that. But we lack the motivation to do what we ought to do or not to do what we ought not to do. We lack the motivation. And the reason is because we sever our daily practice from the convictions that we hold and from recognizing what God has done for us. You see this? So when we sever that, when we just kind of white knuckle it and think, well, I know I ought to do this and I know I ought not to do that, 
Well, a lot of times we fall short. We don't do what we should. We do what we shouldn't do. Why? I think it's because we miss the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 12. We miss what Paul is basing his, his commandments on. See what I'm saying? So, so I think you've got to think about his, his foundation here. I appeal to you, key word, therefore, based on chapters 1 through 11, in view of what God has done, in view of the mercies of God, this is what you ought to do. So, seeing what he has done. I'm going to take just a minute or two. And this is a foolhardy in some ways because you can spend, I mean, preachers have preached two years, five years. They've preached 10 year series of sermons on the book of Romans. All right? So, what I'm about to do is a little bit foolhardy in, in, in believing that I can in any way summarize what he says in chapters 1 through 11. I, I know it's impossible to do. But, but I, I think that's what Paul's saying here. I, I appeal to you, therefore, based on what I just told you, in view of what God has done, in view of what God has done, that's chapters 1 through 11. Here's what he's done. God has given his son to be the propitiation for us. Jesus Christ hung on the cross. He became the source. He became the recipient of the judgment that you and I deserved. When the sun refused to shine, when the earthquake came, when the veil of the temple was torn asunder, when, when, when Jesus Christ bore the brunt of the judgment of God, when he offered himself as the victorious sacrifice for us at the cross, he became what Paul says, through the propitiation or the sacrifice of atonement. That's chapter three. He did that for us. I appeal to you, therefore, based on what God has done, based on, in view of the mercies of God, that you do this. What are the mercies of God? Well, the cross. But you follow that reasoning on throughout the book of Romans and you come to chapters 5 and following where he talks about the grace that God has given us. In chapter 5, you know, Paul says, God has given his grace to us and his grace is so beautiful and so matchless. You cannot out the grace of God. There's nothing you can do that's so bad that God's grace won't cover in fact, he emphasizes it so much, he, he fears a little bit that they might think, okay, well, it doesn't matter what we do, we can just keep on sinning. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. But he's emphasizing the grace. God has extended that to us. I mean, you follow on, and, and I guess you could spend forever in Romans 8. I mentioned this at the beginning of our worship service, Romans 8. I love this verse, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Based on what God has done. You see this? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do these, do these verses say familiar to you? Sound familiar to you? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, listen to him. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of that love, in view of that propitiation, in view of that grace, in view of the faith that God has given us, in view of the cross, in view of the resurrection, in view of God's election, of His justifying you, of His sanctifying you, in view of His coming glorification of you, in view of the mercies of God, therefore, I want you to live a certain kind of life. You don't do this because you want to get something. You do it because you've already been given it. You, do it. you don't do it to get it. You do it because you got it. That is the biblical pattern. God rescued Israel from captivity, and then he says, okay, based on the fact that I've rescued you, I want you to live a certain kind of way. And so he took them to Sinai, and he gave them the law. That was after he had brought them out of captivity, right? He brought them across the Red Sea. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and he says, okay, based on what I've done for you, this is how I want you to live. I want you to live a holy, holy Seeing what he's done. I stress that because everything else I'm going to say in this lesson, you're not going to have the willpower to do it. Now, this is tough stuff. I mean, he says, well, I mean, he's going to talk about being a living sacrifice. I don't know how to do that. I can't, you can't do this through your own power. You can't do it. You might last 10 minutes. If you're really strong, you might last through Monday about lunchtime. You're not going to make it. You don't have the willpower to do it. I mean, if you're just trying, trying to do this and trying to avoid being conformed to the world, I mean, we're immersed in the world. How in the world can you not be conformed to the world that you live in? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. That's the only way you do it. You do it when you recognize and when you truly believe and you appreciate and you're grateful for and you fall down on your knees in gratitude for what he's done for you, it frees you up to live the life he's called you to live. That's the only way you can do it. That's the only way you can do it. So, seeing what he's done. Foundation. Paul's been talking about this for 11 chapters, and then he gets to this. And he says, okay, based on everything I've said to you, I want you to do something that's impossible to do in your own power. I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's probably the part we focus on the most, and maybe we should, but you can't throw away that phrase in the first part of the verse. But he says, okay, based on that, I urge you, I appeal to you, I exhort you. King James says, I beseech you, I beg you, based on what God has done, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All right, let's wrestle with this for a minute. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The word present is a temple word. It's a sacrifice word. It's a, uh, it's a word like this. I want you to go out in your flock, and I want you to uh, get, a, get, a, get a, a lamb, a male lamb of the first year, without blemish. And I want you to bring it to the tabernacle. And I want you to present it I want you to present that lamb to the priest. 
And I want you to kill that lamb, and this is how you go about it. And the priest is going to, you know, you're going to kill it, and you offer it to the priest, and, God, and the priest is going to take it, and he's going to present it as a burnt offering to God. That word present there, I want you to present it, that lamb. This is sacrificial. This is cultic language. This is, this is sacrifice, take it to the altar, take it, kill it, cut its throat kind of language. That's what it is. That's this Old Testament language in Leviticus when you read about the burnt offering and the trespass offering and the sin offering and the gratitude offering. That's what this language is. Present. Bring your goat, bring your lamb to the tabernacle, to the temple at Passover, Day of Atonement, or whatever. You bring that lamb there and you kill it and you present it to God as a sacrifice to be a sweet-smelling aroma to Him. That's present. That's the language here. You notice a big difference between this verse, though, and the Levitical verses? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a what? What's the adjective? As a living sacrifice. We can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice because Jesus offered himself as a dead sacrifice. And because he became alive on Sunday morning. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, based on what God has done, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So you present your body. You take the, the body of a lamb and you bring that lamb to the tabernacle as a blood offering, as, well, as a de facto dead sacrifice. But, but, but the language is, is a little bit different because he's saying... but. It, but I hope you'll see the parallel because these, these people, they were familiar with this kind of language. I mean, some of these Romans, they were, they were Jewish Christians in the church. They were Gentile Christians in the church. But they were all familiar with sacrifice, whether Jewish or, or not. I mean, certainly the Jews were because it was a part of their system. But the Gentiles were as well because it was a part of the pagan, you know, idolatrous kind of world that they came out of. They knew exactly what sacrificial language was. They had been at the temple, whether it was the temple in Jerusalem or it was the temple in Rome. Uh, you know, some sort of pagan temple. They had seen the sacrifices. They'd probably offered them themselves. So they knew this language. And now to hear this, Paul says, all right, no, not that. Not that anymore. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice once for all, the blood sacrifice once for all, so that you don't do that anymore. But here's what you do. You bring your body, not the body of a lamb, not the body of a goat, not the body of a one-year-old heifer. You bring your body to the altar. You take your body and you come to the altar outside the tabernacle, outside the temple as it were, and you say to the Lord, here is my offering, my body. My, this, this, is, this is my sacrifice. And, and, and maybe sometimes we say, man, I'm so glad, I'm so glad. We don't live under the Jewish system anymore, but can you, can you imagine having to offer up all those blood sacrifices? Can you imagine having to do that week in, week out, year in, year out, over and over and over again? Aren't you glad that God doesn't, offer, doesn't expect us to offer the blood sacrifice? Yeah, I am glad. You, you're probably glad as well. God wants so much more than that. He wants so much. He's asking for so much more than that. But you do it not because of what you're going to get. You do it because of what you've already got. You do it based on, in view of the mercies of God, 
you come to him, when you truly recognize that, you truly recognize you've been called out, you've been justified, you've been sanctified, you've been reconciled, and you one day will be ultimately glorified. When you really believe that, there's no sacrifice. There's no sacrifice that is too much to give to that kind of God. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So you come to the temple of God and you say to God, I'm going to offer to you my body, my life, everything that that is. Certainly it's your body, it's what you do with your body. That's why God is concerned about what we do sexually. Because he's concerned about what we do with our bodies. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a living sacrifice and you don't treat your body flippantly. We take care. We ought to take care of our physical bodies. It's God's. Spirit of God lives in us. It's a living sacrifice. I mean, it's just it's demanding what, what he says here. Present your bodies. And that's why we watch what we say. How do we use the organ of speech, our tongue? How we use the members of our body and, and sexually or how we use our time. Everything about it. I mean, God says, Paul says, you offer it to God as a living sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice is it? Well, it's a living one. It is a holy one set apart for God's own use. It is one that's acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That, that part there, acceptable, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, acceptable. There's, a, there's something that's some kind of embedded in this word here, and it's, it connotes the idea of God being pleased with this sacrifice. And I guess I kind of missed that. I was reading some, somebody's words on this, some commentary on this, and they brought this out, and I thought, you know, I think I missed that before. Because I, I think this is a pretty neat idea that when you, when you present your body to God as a living sacrifice, God, God is pleased with that. Based on where you were raised, maybe a lot, to a great extent, honestly, um, it's based on your parents specifically. A lot of times this is based on the father in your life or a father figure in your life, you have a certain perception of God. You may view God as this, in this distant deity. He's cold and, and uh, maybe heartless and just demanding and he never smiles. He never approves of anything you do. He's always looking for the wrong, that, that kind of thing. You, you may have that view of God based on a lot of different factors in your life. Maybe the church you were raised in, you know, those sorts of things. But I hope you see this. God is pleased with this. It makes God happy. God smiles. God's been smiling at you this week. When you were at work and you used your body, you were at school, you used your body to serve someone. You used your speech to encourage someone. You know what God did? God smiled and he said, man, look at you. I love that. I love that. This is acceptable to God. This is, God's not some deity who's out there who cannot be pleased. God looks down at us when we offer, however feeble the offering is and however imperfect it so often is. God is pleased with it. it, it, it God accepts it. It's a great thing. God's, God's, not, God's not impossible to please. He loves it when his people walk according to his ways. The last part of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which is your spiritual worship. Tough to translate here as you'll see if you compare three or four different translations. Um, King James, on which I was raised, says, which is your reasonable service, right? Or 
your spiritual service of worship, the New American Standard says. ESV here says your spiritual worship. They're wrestling with this word, trying to figure out exactly a couple of words here. How, how exactly do you translate this? But let me see if I can sum it up for you in, I mean, simple terms. I think you get it, probably, but you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know what, you know what you're doing? You are offering yourself in a way that honors God. You are worshiping God. You are honoring God. You're sacrificing to God. It is something that you present to Him daily. You, you give it to Him. This is, this is amazing. You can wake up tomorrow morning and you can pray. I hope you will pray this prayer. I hope you'll pray this prayer. Lord, today, help me to offer my body as a living sacrifice to you. Help me to do that. And Lord, accept it as an offering to you. May it be a sweet-smelling aroma. May it please you. May, it, may my offering please make you smile today. And God looks down at that and He loves it. He loves it. It's your spiritual worship. It's not just... This, is, this isn't the only time we worship God. Uh, you know, between 10 and 11. That's, that's not it. 5 and 6, 7 and 8 Wednesday night. This, that's not it. Our lives are to be a continual expression of our worshipful hearts as we commit ourselves to offer something to God in every aspect of our lives, every waking moment. We worship, we, we, uh, we present ourselves to God. But look at what he says in verse 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, your spiritual worship. What does that mean? Paul expounds on it here with a couple of imperatives. Now, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and so on. Um, okay, G grammatical thing here. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Okay, these are, I'll explain a little bit about what this means. Some of you are, are, know what this means on a higher level than what I'm going to say, what I understand here, but these are present, passive imperatives, which is something kind of cool that comes out of that. Present, passive imperatives. Now, present a lot of times it has to do with the nature of, of, the, of the verb. So it's kind of like um, it's ongoing. Uh, it's it's not, not past in the sense that it, you did it then, you don't do it anymore. It's not future in the sense that it's something you're going to do. It's something in the present, but it, it has more to do with it. This is the nature. This is what you do. This is, this is ongoing. So we understand the present part. But it's interesting that you've got a passive imperative here. Now stay with me. If you don't like grammar, stay with me anyway. A passive imperative. See, you know what an imperative is, right? An imperative is you do something. You do something. And what is a passive? A lot of times a passive is when something is done to you. Like you, a pa you say, you know, I didn't really do anything. I was just a passive observer. I wasn't engaged in the action itself. I was just, I was, I was passive. So you've got a passive imperative here, which is kind of, you've got, you got two things kind of pulling it. This is Paul saying, all right, do not be conformed. 
but be transformed. And especially I'm interested in it with that be transformed part because it's an imperative. This is something you need to do. Well, how can I be transformed? Well, it's something God does to you. This is something God does. And so this is not something you can do in and of yourself. How am I transformed when it's something God does to me? How can that be an imperative, something I do? Well, I think the answer to that is God is the one who ultimately does it, but he will only do it when you submit to it. And sirs, this is, this is biblical. This is, this is beginning to end Bible stuff here. God is the author. God, God does things to us. God receives the glory for everything that we do. But at the same time, God is the kind of God who will not come in your life and, and take over when you say, God, I don't want you to do anything. I'm, I don't want you in my life. I don't want to submit to you. God's not that kind of guy. God will do incredible things to you and in you and with you. But he will not do them if you don't say to him, Lord, I want you to do these things. So there's the passive part. God does this. God's going to transform you. But there's the, there's the imperative part. You and I have to willingly put ourselves in the sphere of God's influence. I think it's pretty cool. So he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. I mean, the conformed to this world part. Oh, man. Talk about that for a while, couldn't you? This world that... It's eon is the, is the word world there. This age, uh, this, this, uh, this culture, this context, this historical moment, whatever you want to call it here, the world we live in, the spirit of the age. What's the spirit of this age? Well, man, what is the spirit of this age? Spirit of consumption. In the West, we consume way more than any other part of the world. In America, we consume more than any other part of the world. We consume, consume, consume. The economy is built on consumption. We need to consume more and more and more. Spirit of the age is consumption. Consumption. Happiness is found in consuming more, getting more, accumulating more, having more. Consumption. Spirit of the age is nationalism. Consumerism. Nationalism. Individualism. Spirit of the age is satisfying one's desires of one's sexual orientation of one's sexual identity and so you can you can talk about consumers consumerism individualism sexism uh, ethnocentrism you can talk about a lot of isms here what is the spirit of the age that is antithetical to the things of god any of these don't be conformed to that don't be merely a consumer don't be don't, don't be merely one who acts according to sexual impulses. Don't be one who is ethnocentric or nationalistic, whatever the spirit of the age is, that, that, that tempts us and conforms us. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. So that's the sphere. You see this? It's passive, something God does. But it's imperative. I've got to put myself in the sphere. And where is that sphere of God's operation? It is by the renewal of your mind. And my mind, your mind, is transformed by the Word of God. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God. The Spirit of God working through the Church of God. The Spirit of God working in various circumstances in our lives as He renews our minds. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you were here Sunday night, uh, last Sunday night, 
we talked about Solomon, we talked about Solomon's prayer that God give him a, a discern, uh, what, was the, what were the words? Um, God give me a, an understanding mind that I may be able to discern right and wrong. And if you were here Sunday night, you remember we talked about God doesn't give black and white answers on a lot of things. I mean, you go to school tomorrow, you go to work tomorrow, you interact with people in your neighborhood tomorrow, you're going to face situations this week. Where's the word of God on this? Where's the do or do not? Well, it's not one. Not one. A lot, of, a lot of situations like that. So how do we figure out what the will of God is? By the renewal of our minds, so that by testing, by experience, we may discern what His will is. So the longer you walk with God, the longer you read the Word of God, the longer you try to apply the Word of God to the situations you find yourself in. You know what happens? You're more in tune with what the will of God is. And that's why those of you who've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, 60 years, you've been reading Scripture, you've been trying to live a, as a child of God for a long time, you are in tune in a way to, to the will of God in a way that some of us aren't because of your walking with Him for all these years. That's what he's talking about here. By the renewal of your mind, God transforms your mind so that by experience and testing, you may be able to discern what the will of God is, what's good, what's acceptable, and what is perfect. You figure out how to apply the Word of God to your life. Living sacrifice. Go back to verse 1 and close here. Based on what He's done for you, for us, based on what He's done for us, this is how we live. Living sacrifice. So we wake up tomorrow morning, and I want to challenge you to do this, to think about this. Um, wake up tomorrow morning and you say to him before you go to school or work or before you begin the task of the day and you say to him Lord I'm offering you me you've done everything for me you've given me everything that I need you have blessed me in every way you have saved me justified me reconciled me you promised me you'll glorify me based on that Lord it's not that much. I don't have that much to offer. But what I have to offer you, Lord, I give it to you. This body, this body, and this life, and this spirit, and this intellect, and these emotions, these hands, these feet, my speech, everything that I am, Lord, I give to you. That's what he's talking about here, based on what he's done. That's the commitment of the Christian. That's the commitment we wake up with tomorrow morning, we'll go to sleep with tomorrow night. It's to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. If you're not in Christ today, then we invite you. We invite you. We, um, you know, these words are written to Christians, but they're written in the context of, of Paul talking about all sorts of things. And so his message for you as, a, as a, somebody who's not in Christ, who's not a Christian, his, his message to you is, man, God offers you the world. He offers you the world. You just got to say yes. Uh, you just got to say, Lord, I want to be yours. I want to be yours. I want to submit to you. I want to come to faith in your son. I want to I want to try my best to live the life you created me to live. I want to be your son, your daughter. We'll baptize you into Jesus today for the forgiveness of your sins. And uh, if you'll if you come to faith in him today, we'd love for you to do that. Uh, many of you have done that. Maybe you haven't been offering yourself as a living sacrifice. We do so imperfectly, but you perhaps need to ask for prayers of your church family here. Can we help you? Let's stand and sing.
Why? 